0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, July 5th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court has long tended toward a broad conception of the First Amendment. Last week's majority continues that trend in its ruling that governments may not simply, in the words of Justice Gorsuch, compel an individual to create speech she does not believe. Cato's Walter Olson discusses the case of 303 Creative v. Elenis. Let's get this out of the way first. When discussing the 303 creative case, this was a pre-enforcement challenge. There was a lot of controversy about the details of this case essentially being theoretical or being made up.
1: In the general run of litigation, courts are reluctant uh, at best to entertain cases that are based on fear of injury as opposed to completed injury. But important constitutional claims, and especially First Amendment claims, have long been uh, carved out as an exception where courts do frequently, not always, let cases go forward based on reasonable fear of enforcement if that's going to chill speech. And so that's what happened here. There's a lot of discussion about how the lawyers for Laurie Smith of 303 Creative were exploring multiple theories, including the theory that maybe she had actually had some transactions that the law had interfered with, well, the Tenth Circuit wound up giving her the green light not on that basis, that is, of anything actually having happened to her, but on the basis of a reasonable fear that the state of Colorado would enforce the law against her, based in part on what the state of Colorado itself said. And once it had accepted that route, then uh, a lot of discontent or complaints about, wait a minute, you know, she wasn't actually in business, she hadn't actually turned away anyone that falls by the wayside because that would have been more relevant if the if she had had to establish that as it was she successfully convinced the lower appeals court that she had a reasonable fear of enforcement
0: and just uh, to wrap up here when it comes to these kinds of challenges that is to say I am concerned about an enforcement action against me as i seek to pursue a, a right, that is, that is to say, as I seek to take actions that this right is supposed to be protecting, where have we seen those before? What kinds of cases do we typically see those? It tends to be in certain core areas of constitutional rights, especially the
1: First Amendment and speech. And there's an irony here in that in the early popular reaction to the court's decision in 303 Creative, you had a lot of Progressive people saying, you know, well, I never imagined someone being allowed into court to file a pre-enforcement challenge. The court, you know, should have cracked down on this, or in the future we shouldn't have have so much of this. Now, ironically, of course, the development of pre-enforcement challenges as a safety valve to prevent government uh, violations of speech rights was something developed in large part by progressives to the applause of groups that didn't want to put unpopular views in the position of you have to risk going to jail before you find out how the courts rule on the law. Yeah, you know, that that's the idea here. And it's and there are some other areas where the the right is of is sufficiently central to the constitutional scheme that they will make an exception to the usual rule of, you know, if you're you're just in an ordinary sort of case involving regulation of your land or whatever, no, you have to go ahead and take the risk of being subject to the penalty. They're not going to give you an advisory opinion. But, you know, First Amendment, we have to hope that the, the public catches on here, because if for some reason the courts listened and did away with or sharply limited First Amendment pre-enforcement challenges, it is progressive objectives that would suffer most. You know, it, that would be
0: a, a great opportunity for censors to come in and suppress a lot of political speech. So let's talk about the substance of the case. Uh, in previous cases like this, in, in particular, the Masterpiece Cake Shop a case where a man was more than willing to provide cakes, sort of off-the-shelf cakes, to for gay couples who were planning a wedding. This was a case that was not about religious exercise. This was about free expression. This was expressive conduct, as it was called. And that's an important difference because some of the earlier challenges
1: to wedding services anti-discrimination law had frame them as being free exercise. Now, whatever you think of the merits of that, if such a claim succeeds, it opens up a right that you get because of your religious beliefs that you would not get if you were an ordinary objector or, or someone who didn't want to speak with other than religious ob- objections. You might still be forced to support, to, to, to you know de- decorate the cake or whatever the thing is based on those other grounds. Because this was free speech, doctrine rather than free exercise doctrine. The rights that the court announced are rights for everyone, and they include secularists who object to to, having to do custom writing for a religious cause, you know, all, all the different configurations. If you don't believe in the message, you can't be required to craft a custom expressive message. I would like to dwell for a moment, if I could, on the limitations there, because there are so many early misconceptions about what the court did and what it declared is constitutionally protected. You've touched on one of them, which is that they did not say that there is a constitutional right to turn away a class of customers. Uh, And most of these cases are teed up so that the person says, I'd be happy to serve this gay couple if they wanted a birthday cake or whatever. Uh, The court made very, very clear that it is not creating constitutional protection for someone hanging a sign out saying, you know, no X need apply. It is the message, which again, she's entitled to not create this message no matter who asks for it. It could be, you know, the, the mother in law of the couple or whatever. And, and that is, it's, it's a protection against having to craft the message. Secondly, customization versus off the shelf is very important. The court did not announce protection for, and probably on this record would not protect anyone who refused to sell something in stock like you know inventory at a shop or let's say that she had a website design service which was plug and play and the couple getting married put in their own words and then the site just emerged based on their specifications unlikely in my view that the court would view that as at all protected because it would not be forcing smith to say anything she would be providing a mechanical way of their the the customers to express their own message and so she probably could not rely on this case. So there's a lot of fascination with, wait a minute, can't anyone call their work expressive and creative? You know, can't a you know chef do it for his appetizers? Can't a limousine driver do it for the way that they turn a, a corner particularly elegantly? And there's several answers on that. We, one of which is that the line between speech and non-speech, is not new. It has been very extensively litigated over decades because speech being protected, a whole lot of people would like their own particular activities to be called speech. And we know from all this litigation that despite the cases that might make us smile about nude dancing and whatnot, you know, the courts do not mostly go crazy. They mostly recognize that most services, in fact, the overwhelming majority of things sold on the market are not expression. And that's why, again, the court did not recognize, and there is no particular reason to assume that they have to logically recognize, a right not to participate in advancing someone's ceremony. This has been another of the big grounds for these wedding services objection cases, which is my religious conscience won't let me participate in advancing what I consider to be a bad ceremony. Now, notice that if that were accepted, that would apply to the chauffeur. It might apply to the chair rental place. It, you know, it And and the courts generally, even the conservative justices, uh, have not got along with that. They have instead seen as a more logical line speech. If your chair rental is not speech, and believe me, it isn't, then your mere wish not to participate in a ceremony doesn't get you anywhere under a current precedent.
0: How tactical was it by the Supreme Court not to engage? You've sort of alluded to it, but it seemed fairly tactical by the court to say, we're going to do this under this more general view of expression than religious freedom. I wouldn't use
1: the word tactical simply because it's just the way the Supreme Court operates. A case will be petitioned for their review, and they might be offered five or six different issues to Review and second guess. And it's very common for them only to pick the issue that they either feel like resolving based on how other cases have developed or which they believe to be particularly well presented by this particular case. Perhaps the facts have been stipulated that make it easier to reach the issue, or perhaps, and here we do get into the tactical, you know, perhaps they view the fact situation as more sympathetic toward the side that they expect based on whether cases are heading. You expect to win. But but for whatever reason, I would just throw in the observation that had they instead taken this case or a case like it on free exercise grounds and then approved it for free exercise, there'd be something for libertarians to be very uneasy about, which is that people with religious objections to speaking would get a right that people with non-religious objections, perhaps to saying the same thing, would not have you know, is that disturbing? Well, we can have a separate discussion of that. But when it's freedom of speech and, and the court's line of compelled speech cases, nothing to do with the religion clauses, that inequality is not there. It, it does mean that everyone is being given the same kind of right. It means that the secularist person who doesn't want to write a, an essay advancing someone's religious views
0: as part of creating a website for them, they are just as protected. So, I'm imagining Team MAGA, for lack of a better term, coming to some business that chooses clients and saying, Hey, we want you to do some graphic design work for us, advancing the candidacy of Donald Trump, of Ron DeSantis, of somebody who they might find abhorrent. And it seems to me that this case makes a much broader claim on behalf of individuals to be able to say, I. I cannot be asked or I cannot be tasked with creating something special for you guys because I find what you're doing so objectionable.
1: Again, I would rephrase that to be, I cannot be tasked with having to create your guys' message. Again, if you come and request something completely neutral, you know, maybe, maybe I do have to, to, to have that. I, it should be mentioned for clarity that most public accommodations laws do not make political belief one of their protected grounds. But in principle, they could. There might even be one or two that do. That That is beginning to creep into employment discrimination law, a politi- no discrimination on the basis of people's political beliefs. And so it's, it wouldn't be too surprising if it made it into public accommodations law, at which point you would have a fully ripe, you know, do I have to create speech? Do I have to write a song if I'm a songwriter? Do I have to write a speech if I'm a speechwriter? Do I have to do a voiceover for a candidate that I believe very harmful to the country. In the meantime, I chose the religion example because religion is typically a protected category and therefore being asked to create that speech or that song for religious views that you find odious is very much something that people could face under current law, no change needed. And the, and the again, the court's decision protects people from that obligation.
0: And I, I would like to note that I will do voiceover for people that I don't like but you will be charged the people I don't like rate.
1: <laughs> Even
0: though you have such a distinctive
1: voice <laughs> that all the rest of us can keep track of you
0: doing those <laughs> <Yeah>. ads. <laughs> sure, that's fine. That's fine. I don't mind that. So uh, I guess what is what is next along the... It seems like this is a a a big deal that it forecloses a lot of regulations in states that would like to compel people to create things that they otherwise would not do. What what is the lo- Is there a logical next step for cases in this area? It's a big
1: deal and yet not a big deal. And let me explain. It's a big deal in that this has been intensely disputed in the literature and the law reviews and so forth. And this confirms that the First Amendment principles here apply not just in a nonprofit context, because people may remember Cases involving the Boston Irish Parade, where the court ruled that that parade did not have to let in pro-gay rights marchers because it could it had a right to control its own message, even at the expense of Boston Public Accommodations Law. And then in the Dale case, the Boy Scouts were the defendant, and the court again found no. The Boy Scouts have a right to craft their mission, even if it means. So it gives them a right to to resist certain types of of public accommodation laws. Well, this was the first time that it crossed over to a commercial context. And I think both the dissent, which sees this as pretty significant and devotes a fair bit of time to, you know, trying to disprove it, and also the majority, you, you know, Gorsuch for the majority makes points that I find really unanswerable, which is that most of the important persuasive speech in the world is done as part of a commercial exchange. And that ruling out First Amendment rights for this category would mean that you would lose First Amendment rights for, you know, conventional publishing and conventional broadcasting, you know, advertising-supported, you know, web, web and and on and on and on. Some point out that in a way this is an extension of the case from years ago, Torneo versus Miami Herald, in which Florida. Had the bad judgment to pass a law. I know that sounds like a recent phrase, but it's actually an old and it's an old phrase. But Fuller and I had the bad judgment to pass a law saying that when newspapers criticized someone, they had to run a reply piece by that person defending their their reputation. And the uh, the court said no. You know, newspapers may be commercial entities. We may allow them to be regulated for you know various other you know minimum wage and various other things. But that does not mean that a state can turn them into common carriers for their actual editorial content. So Torneo is an interesting precursor of the fact that, yes, this stuff does apply in
0: a commercial context too. You don't lose your rights just because money is changing hands. And that that's an important thing. So years ago, Austin Bragg and I produced a, a video about alcohol regulation in the Commonwealth of Virginia and the degree to which businesses can advertise, for example, drink specials, or you know items that contained alcohol that could be sold during a happy hour or something so i wonder it and and it seems this the state had no problem allowing this type of restriction on on that type of advertising and I, so i'm wondering if this case also has some imp- broader implications for the protection of commercial speech there
1: is a side issue in this case which The dissent particularly picked up on, which is that the Colorado law also includes some regulations as to what businesses can say regarding what types of business they will accept. And the majority didn't find that important and didn't really treat it on the grounds that Colorado itself had said that its law stands or falls together and that if the main part is struck down, it's not going to defend the the other part. But suffice it to say, advertising is in this kind of halfway house where the courts have acknowledged that it gets some First Amendment protection, but at the same time They also don't hold that it gets as much as speech with a non-commercial purpose. So when it gets to 303 Creative, the court did not really move the ball on the question of what speech she can engage in to promote her business, if you see what I mean. She might still be subject to some regulations there that would not apply to her speech once she was on a job and, and, you know, didn't want to say anything that she didn't sincerely mean. So advertising is left in a bit of limbo. And I have written about how uh, there are real dangers in allowing government to do some regulation with relaxed First Amendment standards on, the, on discussions of who will be hired and so forth. Because in one of the other cases, Sweet Kicks by, by Melissa, another of these wedding services cases, the business very much in the 303 creative position, had gone on national media to say, you know, here are our religious objections. Here's why we feel we can never do this. And the state of Oregon had then construed that as being like hanging out a sign in their window saying, we will discriminate and said, you violated these additional provisions and your penalties are going to be higher because you went on talk shows uh, to say that you have religious objections. Now, at that point, you really are (laughs) Yes, directing penalties toward pretty classic First Amendment speech. So, you know, it it wound up getting resolved without high court review. But those cases lie in wait for when some enforcers get aggressive about, again, public discussion of commerce.
0: Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.